A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello, my name is Sarah Collette, and it is my pleasure today to introduce an interview that I did with Dr. Thomas Alexander. He is a professor emeritus from Brigham Young University. He is an author and wrote a book called Mormonism in Transition, A History of the Latter-day Saints from 1890 to 1930. He also wrote a book called um, Things in Heaven and Earth, The Life and Times of Wilfred Woodruff, a Mormon Prophet. In the past, Dr. Alexander has been the president of the Association of Utah Historians, Mormon History Association, Utah Academy of Sciences, Arts, and Letters, and Utah State Historical Society. He is also past chair of the Utah Humanities Council. I originally encountered Dr. Alexander through his books, which were previously mentioned, and I loved both of the books, Mormonism and Transition and Things of Heaven and Earth and felt um, that they really enlarged my understanding of church history and um, this really important time period from 1890 to 1930. And I'm excited to present this interview to you today. Thank you. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. My name is Sarah Collette, and I'm here joined today with Dr. Um, Thomas Alexander. Welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it being here, and I hope the interview goes well. So let's start talking about how you really um, started to focus your career on this time of transition for the church. I know you um, began doing work with Leonard Arrington. Can you start there and, and tell us a little bit about um, about that? Well, while I was in graduate school at Utah State, and also while I was working on my Ph.D. at Berkeley, I began doing research with Leonard Arrington, and he and I published a number of articles on defense installations here in Utah, and then I did some research on the federal judges' articles that were published in part while I was a student at Berkeley, so that I'd finished and published a number of articles before I finished my Ph.D. at Berkeley. Let me ask, as you began to study church history, did you encounter any issues that were troubling to you at all? Or had you, were you kind of already aware that, the, that there were issues and you were prepared for that? Well, I was aware that there were issues. I'd taken U Utah history from George Ellsworth at Utah State, and I'd uh, read Leonard Arrington's Great Basin Kingdom and a number of other things already, so I knew that uh, there were some things that uh, others might consider, might have considered problems, but I didn't think that they were particularly uh, problematic. After all, we're dealing with human beings. 
No human being is perfect. Human beings make mistakes, and they deal with problems in, in the real world. You can talk about a kind of idealized uh, picture of the way you would like things to be, but life is never really like that. That I find that kind of remarkable. I think maybe today, and I'm young, and so you know, maybe my perspective is a little off, but um, I find that a lot of times we kind of deify the brethren of the church and leaders of the church unintentionally. I don't think we mean to, but we expect maybe a higher standard from them. And I, so I find it remarkable that you had that perspective at a young age. Where, where did that perspective come from, do you feel? I don't know where it came from, really. It's something that grew, I suppose. I had uh, read uh, Juanita Brooks's book, Mountain Meadows Massacre, which was probably the most horrible incident in early 19th century, or you know, mid-19th century uh, church history. And I understood that uh, people could make mistakes. That was a horrible thing to uh, to happen. I didn't see any evidence as some Historians have argued that Brigham Young was responsible for that. I knew that the militias in southern Utah had uh, done it. And I knew something of uh, Brigham Young's teachings of uh, blood atonement, the Adam-God theory, and uh, things of that sort. But I consider those to be rhetoric rather than as something that we were supposed to uh, to believe. And then as I studied further, I found that the first presidency in 12 in 1889 had repudiated uh, the doctrine of uh, blood atonement, and I'm not sure how influential it ever was in the uh, in the church. And I find it, I guess, a bit strange that uh, people expect that sort of uh, perfection from uh, church leaders when what they're dealing with are people who are real people. Well, I wonder, when you read Juanita um, Brooks' book, did you agree with what she was saying? Did you feel conflict about the book itself, or did you feel like it was good scholarship at the time when you read it? No, I th thought it was good scholarship at the time uh, that I read it. I'm not sure how recently you've read the book, but uh, she doesn't believe that Brigham Young was responsible for the Mountain Meadows massacre. Uh, she thinks the responsibility lies with people in Cedar City, in southern Utah. Right. She There was quite a backlash against Juanita Brooks, and why do you think that was? Well, I think that uh, for some time, uh, church leaders uh, believed that you could hide things that if you didn't talk about something, then nobody else would uh, talk about it. And that's, I think, wrong, and I think church leaders have understood that now. If you see what's generally happened in recent years in the church history department and among church leaders, particularly the forthrightness that church leaders have now taken on the uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre and the publication of this new book uh, by Ronald Walker, Richard Turley, and Glenn Leonard, uh, which deals, I think, forthrightly with the Mountain Meadows Massacre. 
And I know a little bit about what Richard Turley's going to do in the second volume because I served as an editor uh, for him at the uh, church history department while I served as a missionary there. And I think that he's going to deal forthrightly with the events that took place after those in 1857 when the massacre took place. So do you feel then that there is progress, that the church is moving in the right direction as far as history is concerned? Yes, I think that's the case. I think they're being more forthright in dealing with the church's past. And I think the reason for that is that they've recognized that you simply can't hide things. Either they have to be told in a way that will help church members understand uh, the things that have uh, taken place in the past, or someone who's not an active church member will uh, deal with things uh, in a way that attacks the church. As far as your approach to history, um, I, I read a little blurb on, on Wikipedia that said you're part of the new Mormon history movement. And is, do you feel that that's true? And, and if so, how would you define that, the new Mormon history? Movement? I think the new Mormon history is made up of uh, people generally within the church who are faithful Latter-day Saints, but who are convinced that you really can't hide things, that you need to deal forthrightly with events that took place in the church. But you need to, uh, to understand that you're dealing with people who are servants of the Lord, and who are trying to do the things that the Lord wants them to. And and I think that's basically what the New Mormon history attempted to, uh, to do. I just think that it's wrong to believe that you can hide things. I think you have to deal forthrightly with it. When you wrote this book, Mormonism in Transition, you were, I mean, you were obviously fascinated with a certain time period, and you kind of assert in the book, that um, this was one of the most important times in the history of the church. And um, it starts with the manifesto. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on in, I guess, with Wilfred Woodruff right around the time of the manifesto and kind of set up the scene for this transition? Well, I think that uh, there was a transition in Wilfred Woodruff's life that led down to the manifesto. If you look at what happened during the 1880s, I think you can understand that. In 1880, uh, Wilfred Woodruff was convinced that polygamy was absolutely necessary for salvation. And he had a personal revelation in 1880, which essentially nailed the flag to the flagpole on the question of uh, plural marriage. But there were a series of events that took place uh, during the 1880s, that put him in a position uh, where he can, could receive this revelation in order to uh, save the church from what he perceived would have been its destruction. And th the first of these was the passage in 1882 of the Edmonds Act. That act brought about the prosecution and imprisonment of over a thousand Latter-day Saint men and an untold number of Latter-day Saint women who simply refused to testify against their husbands. And 
that was extremely difficult, but it wouldn't have hurt the, uh, the church as much as the passage of the Edmunds Tucker Act. That was passed in 1887, and the act brought about the confiscation of the church's secular properties. Explain secular properties. Well, those properties that were not used specifically for worship purposes. Okay, but uh, the church tried to oppose the Edmunds Tucker Act, arguing that this was illegal because they were taking properties of the uh, the, the church for the public schools in in, in Utah. In May of 1890, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the act was legal in a five to four uh, decision, but that decision caused some concern because it left open the possibility that the church's religious properties might be taken. Uh, the act excluded all properties that were used exclusively for religious purposes. But in 1890, the federal government appointed a new receiver of church properties, Henry W. Lawrence, who was an apostate. He'd been a member of the Godbeite movement, and he was very antagonistic toward the church. And he started moving with the idea of confiscating the church's religious properties, and particularly its temples. With Was that under the, I mean, it was kind of all associated with um, forcing the church to abandon polygamy? Or? No, it was connected definitely with, uh, with polygamy because what was argued uh, was that uh, the church membership was practicing plural marriage and that those ceilings in plural marriage were taking place in the temples so that they were being used for an illegal purpose. Okay, and that was the ground that he was... He, that he was going to go uh, to try to uh, confiscate this property. Okay, well, the thing that we need to understand is that by this time, uh, the church leadership had already begun making some changes. In 1889, uh, the church leadership told the membership of the church that uh, they could not be married polygamously here in the United States. And that if they wanted to be uh, married polygamously, they would need to go to Mexico, or at least the woman would. And then the First Presidency, in form of the Twelve, told the members of the, the general authorities that they were not to uh, preach plural marriage any longer. This was prior to the this manifesto. This was prior to, uh, to the manifesto. So they were, they were really concerned at this point about the legal implications. Yes, they were. And uh, at about the, uh, the same time, uh, Judge Thomas Anderson in Salt Lake City, in a hearing, uh, ruled that Mormons could not be naturalized as citizens of the United States. And this caused a, a crisis within the church. Uh, the First Presidency in Quorum of the Twelve uh, issued a document that was called at the time the Manifesto of the Apostles. And what this document uh, said was that these teachings that Brigham Young had made about blood atonement and things of that sort uh, were not ch uh, church doctrine, that the church believed that all, the only thing that could happen would be that the state could take life, the church 
could not do that. And it said that uh, church members were loyal to the United States. It cited various things that had been said by uh, church members. And the church leadership thought that might uh, solve the problem, but clearly it didn't. Then in the summer of uh, 1890, as this change had been made in the, in the receivership, Wilford Woodruff and his counselors began a tour uh, throughout the, uh, the church. Uh, they went to Colorado and New Mexico. Uh, they came back here to Utah. They went to Yosepa, the Hawaiian colony in, in Skull Valley, and then back to, uh, to Salt Lake City. In the meantime, Henry Lawrence had secured an order, a court order, for uh, the arrest of uh, Wilford Woodruff uh, so that he would have to testify uh, on this question. Well, he left Salt Lake City and went to uh, to California and stayed with Isaac Trumbull. Already the church leadership had begun a meeting with political leaders, especially Republican leaders in California, and they were doing that because the Republican Party had been largely responsible for the passage of most of these anti-Mormon acts. And they had uh, tried to work with Congress. In 1887, Utah drafted a new constitution. Uh, this was the uh, sixth constitution that had been drafted. Uh, Utah trying to achieve statehood uh, that was unsuccessful. And they realized that something was going to uh, to have to happen. So again, uh, they met with political leaders in uh, California. And when they returned in late August, uh, Wilford Woodruff gave this whole matter prayerful uh, consideration. Now, wh what we read in the uh, Doctrine and Covenants from Wilford Woodruff is really a press release. But there's some revelation that underpins that. I've never seen the actual revelation, but Wilford Woodruff testified afterward in talks that he gave at various places that he was inspired to do this, that it was a revelation. Okay, so the the manifesto that we have in the Doctrine and Covenants is the press release that he, that he issued to the public. Yes, it is. Okay, but he mentions... In, his, in just personal talks or talks over to congregations that it was, it was through revelation that, that he received it. That it was through it. revelation that this was issued. That's right. And do you feel, I mean, I think now we've been kind of um, comfortable in the church, I think, for the past many years that we're kind of established, I guess, if that makes any sense, that we've, we've established our doctrines, that we've we are, we've kind of come to what we are. And especially with just, reg, you know, general church members, we've gone through the big changes, you know, blacks received the priesthood and, and kind of these big reforms, but we haven't seen anything like that for a long time. And so I don't know that we have a lot of context for what that must have been like. Uh, this was a huge shift in doctrine in the church. Oh, it was a tremendous shift, and not all members of the church were sympathetic with the change uh, that was uh, taking place. Uh, Wilford Woodruff issued this as a press release, and it was accepted 
by those non-members of the church who w wanted the change but didn't want to attack the uh, the church. I, I think particularly of Charles Zane. Char Charles Zane probably did more damage uh, to church members than any single person in the late 19th century because he was responsible for sending so many polygamists to prison. But the day after uh, the manifesto was issued and sustained in conference, he stopped the court proceedings in Salt Lake City, and he said, this statement I consider to be an official statement of the, of the church, but he continued doing what he had done before, and what he had done before was to offer amnesty to members of the church who would renounce the practice of plural marriage and agree to live monogamous lives. Well, he did the same thing afterward, but after the manifesto was issued, why church members could uh, do that. So what happened is that some of those who were polygamists continued to live out their lives in uh, polygamy. Some were arrested and, and prosecuted for that, but most were simply allowed to, uh, to do that. And there were some who lived as spiritual polygamists, but temporal monogamists, that is, they might take care of their polygamous families, but they lived for temporal purposes only with one wife. And basically, that's what Wilfred Woodruff did. He lived with his wife, Emma Smith Woodruff, but he had other families, and he helped to take care of those, and he lived, he met with them occasionally, but generally he held Emma out as his wife to the rest of the world. Well, there were some people in the church who didn't agree with this, who thought that because the revelation had been given to Joseph Smith, that you couldn't change it, and that you had to have polygamy all the time after that. And so it required a considerable time for the church to make a change. And eventually, after the turn of the 20th century, they began internally prosecuting members for their membership, either in bishops' courts or in courts that were held by the Quorum of the Twelve under the leadership of Francis M. Lyman, who was president of the Quorum of the Twelve. So what you're saying is those um, the court, the church court proceedings didn't actually start to happen until a number of years after the manifesto. That, that's true. Okay. And and the uh, church leadership became particularly concerned about about this, especially after 1904 or during and after 1904, when the Reed Smoot investigation began. Uh, Joseph F. Smith was the first one to testify in that uh, in March of 1904, and he testified that he had continued to live with his families and that he was breaking the law of the land by uh, doing that. But he denied that he had entered into plural marriage since the uh, the manifesto, but clearly there were members of the church who had done that. There's been uh, statistical studies that have been done by some people, particularly Catherine Dane's study, that shows that the incidence of plural marriage declined uh, after 1880 and particularly after 1890. But there were some 
plural marriages that uh, took place, particularly with the encouragement of some members of the Quorum of the Twelve, and some of them took place here in the uh, in the United States. The church leadership became very much concerned about this, and in 1910, uh, Joseph S. Smith uh, had a committee of the Quorum of the Twelve organized under Francis M. Lyman, and they began to uh, to hold hearings and to uh, excommunicate or disfellowship uh, church members, including two members of the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, <laughs> Matthias Cowley and John W. Taylor. Uh, incidentally, if you go back uh, to when the uh, church leadership in 1889 told church members not to uh, continue to preach plural marriage, one of those who refused to obey that was John W. Taylor. He got into trouble with the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency at that time, and he continued to insist after that time that members needed to uh, to practice plural marriage. But he wasn't the only one. Uh, there were others as well who uh, performed uh, plural marriage who were members of the, the Quorum of the Twelve, and there were church members who entered into plural marriage after the manifesto. Were all of these disagreements that were happening between the leaders of the church, were they public in nature? Did the, did the general membership of the church know that there was disagreements? I think that a lot of people did, but I'm not sure how widespread it was. What uh, tended to happen, though, was that uh, non-Mormons found out about it, and they these things were published, or charged at least, in the uh, Salt Lake Tribune. There was uh, one man in Salt Lake City, Charles Mostyn Owen, who was involved in doing a great deal of research uh, into this. He fed information uh, to the Salt Lake Tribune and to uh, Protestant leaders in Salt Lake City and let them know what was happening and that the there were church members who were entering into uh, new floral marriage. Let, let me step back, step back from this uh, sure. a little bit. I think it's difficult for church members today to understand why that would be because the president of the church had issued the manifesto and he had told them that it was a revelation. But but you think about this. If you believe that plural marriage is absolutely necessary for your salvation, you're faced with a dilemma. Do you believe the revelation that the church president has issued, or do you not believe it? Do you believe in continuous revelation that the current president of the church is able to receive revelations on matters that previous presidents have expressed themselves on or received revelation about? And and basically that's the uh, issue that church membership faced. Now, within our lifetime, the same kind of thing happened. I don't know whether you remember in 1978 when uh, President Kimball issued the revelation on the priesthood. The next day in the Salt Lake Tribune, there was an advertisement that was taken out by church members that cited things that Brigham Young and others had said about African Americans receiving the uh, priesthood that denied that uh, this could be 
something that the church should uh, do because of uh, those statements by previous uh, prophets. But you may also remember that Bruce R. McConkie issued a statement and said, look, you just have to forget about everything that Brigham Young said or that I've said before. Uh, this is the statement of the uh, current president who's received a revelation uh, on this issue. Which I think took great humility because Bruce R. McConkie had had declared pretty firmly his beliefs on the matter. Yeah, there's no question about that. But, you know, if you can understand that that same kind of thing can happen within our lifetimes, then you should be able to understand that the same kind of thing could have happened before that. And I suspect that there were people who left the church during the during the 1970s, just as there were in the decade after 1890, when you had the fundamentalist movement that began and has started now to to form these churches that continue to practice plural marriage. Right. I, I want you to go back also. Let's address the, the fact that um, you mentioned that this was a core belief for the church members, that that polygamous marriage um, really was kind of the gateway to the, the the top of the celestial kingdom, that this was their their salvation. And and Wilfred Woodruff, you address this a lot in, in your book on Wilfred Woodruff. Wilfred Woodruff himself really had to re-examine um, those very doctrines and think about them tremendously in order to go through this process of how to change you know well, the direction that, of the church that really what's involved here is his reassessing this matter so that he could receive that revelation you know we uh, look at examples like paul and alma who received a revelation that immediately changed their point of view for wilford woodruff it was a long odyssey from 1880 until 1890, ten years for him to to make that change, and it took a lot of soul-searching on his part. He was in Salt Lake City in 1885 for some matters that didn't relate to, to plural marriage. When his wife, his first wife died, he was unable to attend her funeral. He was in the, the president's office on South Temple and he watched her funeral cortege pass by. If you go to the cemetery in Salt Lake City, you can see that she's buried next to him in the cemetery. But he couldn't attend her funeral because he was afraid that he might be taken by the United States Marshals and might be prosecuted for unlawful cohabitation. And it required considerable soul-searching on his part uh, at that time. But it was shortly after that that he uh, decided that what he needed to do was to be a temporal monogamous. He continued to take care of his other families, but he lived uh, just with Emma generally after that. And, you know, that that might have been enough had the federal government, federal officials, not insisted 
that the church repudiate the practice of plural marriage and that they began to uh, to stop a new uh, plural marriages and and that presumably was to have happened in 1889 uh, when the church leadership said now nobody can be married here in in the United States in plural marriage uh, they have to go to Mexico to uh, to do that so they were observing the law of the land in the uh, United States and the Mexican government didn't care about that under Porfirio Diaz he didn't care whether they practiced plural marriage or not and they were pretty much free to uh, to do it there so they were observing the law of the land in the United States, and they were doing what the Mexican government allowed them uh, to do. But that simply was not enough. Th that hearing before Judge Anderson in uh, 1889 demonstrated that that wasn't the case when he said that Mormons couldn't become citizens of the uh, United States. And then afterward, when the federal government began to uh, to move to confiscate the church's temples. For Wilford Woodruff, that was something that was absolutely unacceptable. It certainly tipped the scales uh, for him uh, to be able to uh, receive that revelation that underpins the manifesto. It, it seems to me that the that it's almost a requirement of, of the Lord. When the church makes these big changes or goes through these kinds of transitions, that the leaders of the time are, you know, tried for a period where they're, they're literally prepared and in, in that they have to really prepare their minds to accept something new and that that takes quite a bit of work and quite a bit of effort. And I imagine that for Wilford Woodruff, it took a great deal of courage to finally make that change because he wasn't just facing all of the political pressure from the outside, but he was also dealing with um, the members of the church, which were, you know, I mean, he was their prophet. And so I'm sure that it weighed heavily on his mind and, and took a great deal of thinking no, there's no question about it. And you can see this in some of the things that he wrote in his journal over this period. That's one of the advantages we have with Wilford Woodruff is that we have rather complete journals uh, down to this time. And he made a statement in it, something like this, uh, I have come to a point in my life where, because of this kind of pressure, the Lord has inspired me to make this change. Um, one of the things that I loved about Wilfred Woodruff is that he um, he was kind of, well, he did work with Brigham Young in, in writing the history of the church, and he was very, very respectful of the fact that Brigham Young had a certain perspective and way that he wanted it presented. And he was under Brigham Young's charge to write the history of the church in certain ways sometimes. But then when he became the prophet, he had, I mean, he was able to change some of the things that Brigham Young did. But he main, maintained a great respect for for Brigham Young. Can you talk a little bit about their relationship? Well, he was quite close to Brigham Young. Uh, you know, 
one of the things that we don't understand during the 19th century is that the the apostles were often sent to become leaders in various communities. A Mariner W. Merrill, for instance, was up in Cache Valley. Uh, Ezra T. Benson was in uh, Tooele. Charles C. Rich was up in the Bear Lake country. Lorenzo Snow was in Brigham City. All of these were members of the Quorum of the uh, the Twelve. Uh, Orson Hyde was down in Sanpete Valley, so that all of them weren't living together in, in Salt Lake City, and they had to come to Salt Lake City on occasion for meetings. But Wilfred Woodruff lived in Salt Lake City uh, throughout all of this period, so he was very close to, uh, to Brigham Young. Uh, he was never a counselor, but the two of them uh, met together and spoke about things very frequently, and he was in meetings with uh, Brigham Young that a lot of other members of the church were not. Uh, for instance, when John D. Lee came to Salt Lake City and told Brigham Young, well, lied to Brigham Young about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, Wilford Woodruff was in the meeting between the, uh, the two of them, and he wrote down what John D. Lee told Brigham Young. And so that, that we know firsthand with primary documents that John D. Lee lied to uh, Brigham Young about the, uh, the massacre since he told Brigham Young that it was an Indian uh, massacre. And those words are spelled out in Wilford Woodruff's journal as he sat there listening to John D. Lee talk to the two of them and tell Brigham Young about what had uh, happened or his his lies about uh, what had happened. You mentioned at the beginning that Wilfred Woodruff never necessarily considered things like the Adam-God theory and other um, statements by Brigham Young to be doctrinally based, but more of um, Brigham Young's opinion or his perspective. Uh, do you Did he ever express any of that in his journals? I don't remember anything in the journals about that. But I do remember that uh, he was largely responsible uh, for this Manifesto of the Apostles in 1889 that repudiated the Blood Atonement uh, doctrine. He simply uh, indicated, and all of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve and First Presidency signed that, and it was published by the uh, Church at the time. Uh, there have been some historians who cited Brigham Young's work as though it was something that's church doctrine today, but that's simply not true. It was repudiated in 1889 by the First Presidency in Quorum of the Twelve. Um, before we move on from this subject, I just want to cover one other um, point that I think is really important. But this, the manifesto and, you know, the subsequently the years that follow the manifesto, really affected the doctrine of the temple. And I, I guess the emphasis of the temple, our current understanding of temple doctrine is so different than what originally Wilfred Woodruff understood the temple to be. Um, and did he struggle with that at all as far as, I mean, how did they go about really kind of shaping a new emphasis there? And was it all just kind of residual or was were there actual actions? Okay, well, one of the things that 
I think we need to understand is that there was some controversy in the church, even before the, the manifesto, about whether plural marriage was absolutely necessary for salvation or not. And when the people in Utah wrote this constitution in 1887, it was taken back to Congress. And the church's attorney, Franklin S. Richards, testified before Congress. And this is in 1889. He testified that plural marriage was permissive rather than obligatory on the church membership. So that that kind of change had begun to, uh, to take place already before the manifesto was uh, issued. And uh, some members of the uh, church leadership had said during the 19th century previously that it was obligatory, and others had said no, uh, that it was not, and that you could uh, be married to just one wife and, and achieve the highest degree of uh, salvation. So there, it, it wasn't uniform uh, within the church even before that. So I think perhaps it was a bit easier uh, to change the emphasis than than you've indicated because of the be, because the meaning of the term celestial marriage uh, was not completely well defined. That is, you find statements by Joseph F. Smith previously and by George Q. Cannon that say that it was necessary, but you can find statements that indicate that it was not by church leaders. And if you look at the way church members voted with their feet in the church as a whole, say in 1870, there were probably somewhere around 25% of the families that were in uh, plural marriage. So that means the majority of the members of the church were not in uh, polygamy, even though they may have uh, believed that it was an important principle of the church. Uh, they were not polygamists themselves, and the percentage of uh, membership declined. Now, this is not uniform. There's been uh, considerable work done on this question by Lowell C. Banyan. It goes by Ben Banyan, and it shows that in some communities, the uh, percentage of polygamous families was very high. St. George was one of them, but in some communities, it wasn't uh, quite as as high. I hope that he publishes that uh, soon because I'd really like to see uh, what we can find out about it. Uh, we have a rather thorough study of the community of uh, Manti by Catherine Danes, and she shows that uh, the peak of polygamous marriages was during the Reformation in the 1850s and that it uh, declined after that. Why it, do you think it declined? I think that it uh, declined because the uh, church membership was not pressed as much uh, to enter into uh, plural marriage as they were uh, during the uh, Reformation. And I think that... Uh, when you say pressed, what do you mean by pressed? Well, they, they, were, were, they were encouraged. Uh, talk from the pulpit, uh, bishops uh, calling people in and urging them to, uh, to enter plural marriage. Uh, general authorities uh, urging people who were called to be in stake presidencies or bishoprics or stake high councils, encouraging them to 
uh, to enter plural marriage. But but even before 1890, there were some members of the church who didn't enter a plural marriage who, who would have uh, said, okay, plural marriage is an important principle. Anthony H. Lund is one of those. He was a, a monogamous uh, throughout his uh, entire life. Anthony W. Ivins was another one. Uh, he was in important church positions. He was even stake president in Juarez in Mexico where all of these uh, polygamists were fleeing and where uh, new uh, polygamous marriages were performed, uh, some of them even by him. But he remained a monogamous uh, throughout his entire life. And if, if you look at the people who were called into the uh, Quorum of the Twelve at the time that uh, John W. Taylor and Matthias Cowley were dropped from the Quorum, those people were, and this was, of course, after the turn of the 20th century, but those people were monogamists. David O. McKay, Joseph Fielding Smith, people like that. You have already um, spoken a little bit about Senate hearings. Will you set up the hearings that took place in the Senate, give us a little bit of background? Sure. Okay. Reed Smoot was elected by the legislature. This was before the direct election of senators. So the senators were elected by the legislature in the United States until 1914. They elected Reed Smoot to be a senator from the state of Utah, and Smoot took office. That's one thing we need to understand. He was actually seated in the Senate. So he was a serving senator during all of the time that these hearings took place. Uh, they began in March of 1904, a committee that was headed by Julius Burroughs, a senator from Michigan, began hearings after protests were made by a number of people here in Utah, and uh, petitions uh, came to, uh, to Congress from throughout the United States, urging uh, Congress to remove Senator Smoot. And why? What was the. the there foundation? were several arguments. Uh, first, uh, that the uh, church members were continuing to practice plural marriage and that new plural marriages had, had occurred. And secondly, uh, that the, uh, the church was uh, heavily involved in politics and in the economy uh, here in Utah, that it was sort of uh, running Utah like a, a corporation. Those uh, charges were made. Now, one of the protesters, Reverend Padden, argued that Smoot was a polygamist himself. But Congress didn't ever consider that, and it was untrue. Uh, Reed Smoot was a monogamist throughout his uh, entire life. He had never been a, a, a polygamist. Well, and Congress didn't insist that he was a polygamist. Smoot insisted that the only thing that could justify Congress in removing him from his seat was to demonstrate that he had somehow breached his oath to defend the Constitution of the United States, that he himself was personally responsible for that. But the Senate committee paid very little attention to that. And in fact, the, the hearings were probably the most intense investigation by 
the federal government of a religious organization in the history of the United States. There are four heavily packed volumes of hearings that uh, took place between 1904 and 1906, and then the Senate voted in 1907. So now let's bring um, Pre President Smith into the situation. Okay. As President Smith uh, testified under subpoena uh, from the uh, Senate, uh, he testified uh, that he himself had continued to live with his uh, plural wives. Uh, he testified that the church did not control politics in Utah. He uh, admitted that he was president of a number of corporations. But in fact, that presidency was really kind of for show. He really wasn't running those corporations uh, himself. And why for show? What was the purpose? Well, uh, because he was a public figure. It, it, people had more confidence in the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company if they knew the president of the church was its president. But he wasn't the actual manager of the, of the company. Okay. So the Congress was really interested in how much influence he had over the legislature that... Selected Reed Smoot, or seated Reed Smoot, is that? That seated Reed Smoot and how much influence he had in politics in Utah and in the surrounding states because there were Mormons in Idaho and in Wyoming and uh, in Nevada in addition to uh, those that uh, lived in, in Utah. What do we know about his feelings about the hearings? Was that hard for him to oh, they, it was extremely hard for him, and it caused uh, him to rethink a number of things. After he came back, uh, he w was under considerable pressure, and he issued and presented to the, the church's general conference in April of 1904 what's been called the Second Manifesto. And what it said, essentially, was that the Woodruff Manifesto was in effect and that those church members who entered into new plural marriages could be tried for their uh, church membership. And uh, the church uh, was somewhat quiet about doing this at first. And then the church leadership found out that this wasn't working. And that's when the committee that was chaired by Francis M. Lyman was organized, and they began to uh, to hold investigations, and they published in the uh, Deseret News the members of the church who were uh, disfellowshipped or who were excommunicated for entering into plural marriage after the manifesto. It, it wasn't that people who were in plural marriage currently, but, but generally particularly those who entered plural marriage after 1904 when the Second Manifesto. I have heard that the, and I have not read this, I have heard this, that the temple ceremony was addressed in those hearings. Is that the case? That's true, that uh, there were uh, people who testified about what was said in the temple ceremony, and the testimony is contradictory. Okay, explain that. Well, it was contradictory in the sense that uh, some people testified that uh, members of the church took an oath to to exact retribution uh, for those who'd murdered Joseph Smith. And uh, those uh, others testified that they would 
pray that the Lord would act against those who murdered Joseph Smith. And which was true? Uh, I don't know. And the reason I don't is that I don't know what actually what was in the uh, temple ceremony during that period, which words were actually in it. Um, and is that because records have not been released? Uh, they haven't been released. The, the church does not re uh, release the temple ceremony. It's uh, considered sacred, and only those members who go to the temple and know are supposed to know what the ceremony uh, says, uh, though uh, there have been members of the church who've been through the temple who published what they purport to be the uh, temple ceremony. Okay, so do you feel that for President Smith, he felt, did he feel as though his own faith was being attacked? Did he just feel worried for the church? What was the most difficult aspect? Well, it was difficult because he was being accused of breaking the law of the land and the law of the Lord both. And he reacted very strongly against that. Okay, so he, when he came back and issued the Second Manifesto, um, he really was trying to establish, I mean, he was establishing his perspective officially, that this is how he wanted to now be represented. Is that That's right? That's right, okay. that he wanted the church to be represented as opposing new plural marriages. Okay, okay. Now, the the... Did the hearing, the Senate hearings affect the way the church um, verbalized politics? Did it change the rhetoric at all? Well, not openly. There were members of the church and the, and the church leadership who belonged to both of the uh, political parties and who were strong in both of the, of the parties. Uh, people like Heber J. Grant and Anthony W. Ivins and Charles W. Penrose, who was editor of the Deseret News, were Democrats, quite vocally uh, Democrats. Uh, people like uh, Joseph F. Smith, uh, John Henry Smith, Anthony H. Lund uh, were strong Republicans and were quite vocal as Republicans. And so, and Reed Smoot was also very vocal as a, a, a Republican. And the Republican Party was uh, generally the majority party uh, during this period. But in 1912, the Republican Party began to uh, to splinter because it uh, wouldn't support progressive uh, issues. And a progressive party was organized, headed by Nephi Morris and Stephen Love. They uh, ran for Congress and for the uh, governorship. The Republican Party was successful in, in electing William Spry that year, but in 1916, because, because Spry vetoed uh, prohibition legislation, the Democratic Party elected Simon Bamberger as governor. He was the second uh, Jew to be a governor in the United States, and he was a not a, a member of the church, and of course a Democrat, and the legislature that was elected was Democratic. The senator that was elected in 1916, uh, William King, uh, was a Democrat, and the Democrats uh, governed Utah then for uh, four years. Do you feel that the memberships, the, the general membership of the church felt free to choose the political party that they 
Yeah, yes, I think that they did uh, during this period. And I think the reason that the Republican Party was uh, successful in uh, Utah, as far as uh, national politics uh, were concerned, was because of the protective tariff. Uh, Reed Smoot was very much in favor of that, and the protective tariff hurt or, or helped a number of uh, industries in Utah. It helped the mining industry, it helped the sheep industry, uh, and uh, other extractive industries, uh, particularly sugar beets. The Republican Party favored the protective tariff, and the Democratic Party was opposed to it, uh, so that it was easy for church members to become uh, Republicans during this period. But the uh, church membership was not overwhelmingly a Republican, and there was a very good reason for that, uh, because the Republican Party had generally been responsible for the passage of this anti-Mormon legislation during the 19th century, and so traditionally, Mormons had been uh, Democrats. So what you're saying is, because there were majorities of one party or another, it's, it's not because the Brethren were instructing members on the political parties that they should join as much as the issues of the time. I think it was uh, it was partly the issues of the time, though I would say that in the period after uh, 1890, the church leadership uh, worked hard to recruit people into the Republican Party because so many members of the church were Democrats. And so what tended to happen was that the uh, church leadership right around 1890, 1891, told the Democrats to kind of cool it, and uh, Republican leaders like John Henry Smith and Francis M. Lyman went out and recruited for the uh, Republican Party, and they were able to, uh, to get a number of uh, local leaders to and become what were Republicans. What, what were their motives in doing that? Uh, to try to provide some balance between the two parties, because the tendency for Mormons was to become Democrats during that period. And they were afraid that if they didn't do that, when Utah statehood uh, came up in 1895, that the Republicans in Congress would vote against Utah entering the Union because uh, they would be afraid that Utah would come in as a democratic state. Let's um, kind of draw a parallel here to what's going on today. I know this is our Mormon moment, and we've got officially today, we have a um, Mormon presidential um, Republican candidate. And um, I think there's kind of a uniformity. I know that there are Republicans and Democratic Democrats within the general membership of the church, but there seems to be a perception that generally Mormons are Republican, and it's a lot more cultural now. But has that always been the trend, or are we more, um, are the culture wars now and the social wars that are going on now emphasizing that more today, or has that always been the case? No, it hasn't always been the case. Uh, the change took place during the 1970s when uh, more Mormons began to uh, to move into the Republican Party. Uh, before that time, if you look at Utah politics, what, what tended to happen was that the uh, political com complexion of Utah uh, swung back and forth between the Republican and Democratic Party. Uh, one legislature would be overwhelmingly Democratic and, and the next one overwhelmingly uh, Republican or the the majority would be very narrow, uh, except during the 1930s, uh, when Utah was overwhelmingly a democratic state, 
Franklin Roosevelt in the 1936 election uh, received one of the highest percentages of uh, votes in Utah of any presidential candidate. And in fact, the highest percentages of votes that any presidential candidate has received in Utah was in 1896 when William Jennings Bryan, the Democratic candidate for president, got 80% of the vote in Utah. Nobody's come close to that since then. So you mentioned personally that you're a little left of center. Do you feel that that ever creates conflict in your own um, associations at BYU or within your wards? Or are people generally really accepting of that? I haven't had any particular uh, conflicts, though uh, some members of the church in this area will joke about that. Uh, we There are a, a number of uh, Democrats in my ward. Uh, often they're uh, faculty members from BYU, uh, but there are five or six Democratic families in, in the ward, and uh, so it's not a problem here. Uh, I have a friend who lives in Davis County, and uh, almost everybody in his ward is a, a Republican, and he's a, a very vocal Democrat. Uh, he he said that the uh, church song ought to be "Choose the Left" instead <laughs> of "Choose the Right." <laughs> but he's he's mis he's um, outnumbered yeah. in his in his area. I think um, that. The, especially in Utah, where we have such a high concentration of, of church members, when you get, um, you know, areas that are largely Republican, it, it's, it seems as though that is the representation of the church everywhere. But do you know of any statistics or any, any indication that, um, that political parties are more diverse outside of Utah or are, do they tend to be um, across the board, more Republican church members. Yeah, uh, they do tend to be more. There were some statistics that were just released last week on this. Nationally, only 13% of the church membership tends to be Democratic. In Utah, it's only about 7% of uh, members of the church who are uh, Democratic. So that they're more Republican in Utah. But uh, if you're a Mormon any place, you tend to be a Republican. And do you think that this is problematic at all, or are there problems with this scenario? Oh, I think that uh, definitely there are, and I think that uh, partly it's uh, a blind attitude on the part of Republicans. If you look at the uh, church's position on a lot of uh, different issues, uh, for instance, on immigration, uh, on abortion, uh, it uh, tends to be closer to the position of the Democratic Party here in Utah, the Utah Democrats, than it is to the Republican Party. The Republican Party nationally has just adopted a, a platform plank in which it opposes all abortions for whatever reasons. Uh, the church leadership, uh, the church's official position, as it's indicated in the handbook and instruction, uh, is that uh, abortion is acceptable in cases of rape or incest or to protect the life of the mother. And the National Republican Party is opposed to uh, to that uh, position. And I'm not certain how Republican members of the church reconcile themselves to that, but they do. When we're talking about the transition of the church around the turn of the century, the church actively recruited people for the Republican Party to balance the scale, you say. But the church is largely silent today about 
politics. I think that they feel a little gun shy of those issues. But why do you think they don't come out and say, but how come they don't, I guess, represent that it's okay to be a little bit more left of center? Well, I I don't know, uh, because I haven't heard any official pronouncement from the uh, church leadership about this. But if I were to guess about it, uh, I think it's a, a, a problem of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Now, if the church were to come out and, and begin recruiting people for the Democratic Party, then they would be accused of interfering in politics. Uh, I, I'm not certain how they get around that, uh, that question. Again, as I say, I don't know that for sure, and I'm just guessing uh, on this issue. But there have been some prominent uh, members of the church who are uh, Democrats, uh, uh, particularly Marlon Jensen, who, who's a member, a very active Democrat, and a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy, and uh, the the current uh, church historian, uh, Stephen Snow, is uh, a Democrat. He was uh, chair of the Democratic Party in Washington County, and that's about as... Uh, difficult as a, a position as being chair of the Democratic Party here in Utah County. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And wasn't President Faust? President Faust was also a, a Democrat. Uh, I don't know the uh, politics of the current members of the of the first, first presidency. I don't know that they've said what they are. Right. Um, let's move now into another topic of interest that you address in your book, which is the Word of Wisdom. So let's start talking about that. And um, I want to address the issue of um, prohibition and what kind of an effect that had on the word of wisdom at the time. Okay, well, let me go back into the late 1890s uh, to begin with. Uh, while Wilford Woodruff was uh, president of the, the church, the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve began, undertook a discussion of the word of wisdom. And uh, there were some members of the uh, the quorum, partic particularly Heber J. Grant, thought that it ought to apply uh, to alcohol and, and, and tobacco. And uh, they talked about it. Uh, some members uh, said that uh, the church membership ought to observe the word of wisdom. And uh, President Woodruff said, yes, members ought to observe the, uh, the word of wisdom, but we're not going to uh, press them to do it or withdraw membership or anything of that sort or keep them out of the temple. But we ought to teach members of the church not to eat meat. <laughs> uh, for him, that was the essence of the uh, the word of wisdom. And interestingly, uh, President Lorenzo Snow agreed with that. And so it's during Joseph F. Smith's administration that this uh, begins to change. Uh, Heber J. Grant was particularly concerned about this, and he was concerned especially uh, because uh, Protestants were uh, pressing for uh, prohibition. In, in, in 1906, uh, there were only three states that had prohibition, Maine, Iowa, and Kansas. And there were some local prohibition laws in some other states. In, in, uh, principally in the Midwest and in the, the South. The question of prohibition came up in the Utah Constitutional Convention, and members of the church were opposed to putting prohibition in the, uh, the Constitution. 
Uh, John Henry Smith, for instance, who was president of the uh, Constitutional Convention, uh, said this ought to be a matter of uh, free agency. Uh, we call that moral agency today, but during that period, the term free agency was generally used by uh, members of the church. Well, Heber J. Grant felt quite differently about this, and he was very much embarrassed because Protestants were pushing uh, prohibition, and people in Utah uh, generally weren't as much, and he became heavily involved in the prohibition movement and a number of other uh, general authorities and prominent church leaders uh, also became involved in the uh, Prohibition movement, and they wanted uh, the state of Utah uh, to adopt uh, statewide Prohibition. They were particularly active in uh, dealing with the question of the use of alcohol and uh, tobacco, especially, but but particularly alcohol. Uh, This became a political issue in the the, uh, state, and it threatened to tear the Republican Party apart because most of the people in the Democratic Party were the Mormons, and they could take any position they wanted on on this question. But in the Republican Party, the party was split between Mormons, who were Republicans, and non-Mormons, who were. And many of them saw absolutely nothing wrong with uh, drinking, with uh, alcohol. And so Reed Smoot and Joseph F. Smith were were very much opposed to having statewide uh, prohibition. Well, William Spry was elected uh, governor, and in uh, 1909 uh, he vetoed a local option law. This would have let cities and counties uh, decide whether they were going to have a prohibition or not, so it would not be uniform throughout the state. This caused an uproar. So in 1911, uh, he signed a local option law. Well, what happened, of course, is that in some areas, the counties and cities uh, voted to go dry. And in some areas, they voted to remain wet. Virtually all the mining camps, for instance, stayed wet. Salt Lake City did. But a lot of the rural counties uh, didn't. And so if you wanted a drink, you went into one of these cities. And so you were saying that the the um, leadership in the church were really split on this issue. So give us an idea of what the attitudes were of the membership of the church. As far as drinking and the word of wisdom, were they drinkers? Were they not drinkers? Uh, generally not. And uh, the reason for this is that the, uh, the uh, members of the Republican Party were arguing inside the church you need to observe the word of wisdom, but they were working against the adoption of legal prohibition in the state. So if you read Joseph F. Smith's sermons, he would preach against the use of alcohol and against the use of uh, tobacco, but he really didn't want the state to adopt a, a prohibition act. Um, when did it become, I mean, you mentioned before that there was a time when the emphasis of of abstaining was really on meat, or that at least the president of the church was concerned about that. When did alcohol become an issue of abstaining completely? Uh, that uh, that starts with uh, uh, Joseph F. Smith's administration. And I, I really can't say that exactly, because if you look at the 19th century, you look at what happens over time, 
the the church tended to emphasize the uh, not uh, drinking at particular times, and it emphasized that, uh, or it de-emphasized this at other times. Brigham Young actually served alcohol at his table uh, during uh, part of the uh, the term of his presidency, and he actually ate chewing tobacco or, or chewed tobacco during a part of the time. And he, he gave that up. But it, it was not uniform uh, through the uh, the 19th century. And there, there are some people, for instance, who say that when the Doctrine and Covenants was sustained as an official document in 1880, that meant that the Word of Wisdom was sustained the way we understand it today. But that's nonsense. Because if you read the Doctrine and Covenants, it says it's a principle with a promise. And uh, church members looked at it uh, that way uh, often. In fact, uh, during Joseph F. Smith's administration, letters were sent out from the uh, First Presidency which said, look, uh, there are some older ladies who drink tea. We shouldn't be too harsh on uh, on them. And there are some older men who uh, chew tobacco. We shouldn't be too harsh on, harsh on them, but we should teach the younger generation not to uh, to use tobacco and not to uh, to drink. And there were stakes that took surveys because the uh, First Presidency asked them to on the percentage of youth that used uh, liquor and, uh, and tobacco. And they encouraged the, the youth in the Aaronic priesthood and not to uh, to drink all all through uh, Joseph S's administration it uh, continued to do that and then when Heber J Grant became president of the church in 1918 the emphasis was even stronger because he'd been actively involved in the prohibition movement and in 1921 for the first time it's a requirement for entering the temple it, it's listed in the uh, temple recommend book as one of the things that that the uh, bishop and stake president are to uh, to ask members. So the whole thing isn't uniform. The church members or the church leadership, particularly during Joseph Smith's administration, are preaching against the use of uh, liquor and tobacco and uh, coffee and tea, but th th they're not pressing it uh, so much as they did after 1921. So 1921 was when it became part of the Temple Recommend interview, and that was kind of when it when it became like the official practice of the church. Yeah, well, what's official? I mean, if the church leadership is, is preaching uh, in conference that you uh, shouldn't use tobacco, you shouldn't use uh, liquor, uh, they were particularly concerned about tea and coffee because they were considered unnaturally stimulating. And uh, so they they preached against that uh, from a kind of uh, scientific uh, point of view because they're, uh, you, you know, you don't get drunk uh, from tea and coffee, but it was uh, considered to be bad uh, for that reason because it was unnaturally stimulating. So when did the emphasis on tea and coffee begin? Was that during President Smith's? Um... Yes, it was during President Smith's administration, particularly. But they, could, the uh, church leadership, could go back and cite, okay, what is it? What does hot drinks mean in the Word of Wisdom? Because that's in the Word of Wisdom. Well, there were statements that were made by Joseph Smith 
and by Hiram Smith that said that hot drinks were tea and coffee because they were the major hot drinks during that time. I find it interesting that cocoa isn't included. I mean, you can drink cocoa. Probably try not to drink it too hot, but uh, you 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 can drink cocoa, okay, and you're not considered uh, breaching the word of wisdom. There were, there were some members of the church who thought that uh, caffeinated drinks like uh, Coca-Cola, Dr. Pepper, and Pepsi-Cola were against the word of wisdom, but the church has never officially come out and uh, said that you shouldn't uh, drink those uh, those drinks. And uh, there are uh, members of the church leadership that uh, drink uh, caffeinated drinks. I mean, they're not hot drinks. At least I don't like hot Coke. I don't know very many people who do. I When I, I served my mission in Uruguay and they drank uh, mate, and culturally, it was accepted. And so you would go into sacrament meeting, and the bishop would have his thermos, his mate, his mate on the stand <laughs> during, you know, fast and testimony meeting. You could watch the bishop. Yeah, take I his noticed mate. that uh, <laughs> the people use that in in South America. And in fact, uh, we went on a cruise last year, and one of the things that we got was a mate cup on it. Uh, what does mate have in it? Is it? It's a. It's a. Oh gosh, I'm going to say it. In is it theobromide or or caffeine in it? It's, or what? it's called in Spanish cafeína, but okay, it's a well, form of caffeine. caffeine yeah. <laughs> so and then we, we is it hot? Yeah. Well, they drink it hot and cold, but in Uruguay they drink it hot. And we would have, you know, we would go into Sunday school and they would talk about the word of wisdom, and everyone would always say. But it's okay to drink mate. It's okay to drink mate when they, you know, they talk about all the things you couldn't drink. And um, some people love mate. I think it's nasty stuff. <laughs> uh, I <laughs> tried it on the, it. Uh, on the ship that uh, that we were on. Uh, the uh, tour director of the group that we were with introduced us uh, to it, and uh, and we got a mate cup, but. Uh, I really didn't like the taste of it very well. Yeah, it's got a real grassy taste to it to me, but well, it's it looks like ground up grass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. It's not it's not the prettiest tea. Um, so as far as your personal feelings about the word of wisdom, do you feel as though the word of wisdom evolved as far as our current understanding through revelation, or is it cultural? Was it a result of of political and cultural views that have kind of culminated today. What's your personal feeling on that? Uh, I find that really hard to deal with because you have a number of different strains that that you're dealing with in the thing. And if you look at what happened in the 19th century, uh, our current interpretation is emphasized at particular times. Uh, so I don't think you can say, okay, it's entirely the a prohibition movement that uh, causes this to uh, to come about. And I don't think you can say that it was entirely the fact that Joseph Smith received this revelation uh, because it, uh, it, it really was, when it was received, a principle with a promise. Now, when does it become a commandment? Well, Brigham Young said it was a commandment. But even after that, he uh, drank alcohol. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it's really hard to uh, to sort out. Uh, all I can tell is that the emphasis gets uh, pushed in the direction that we accept that 
during Joseph F. Smith's and particularly during G, uh, Heber J. Grant's administration as a president of the church. But to say that it's entirely that, I think, would be wrong because it was emphasized at particular times uh, during the 19th century. And there were actually people in Missouri who were excommunicated for not observing the word of wisdom, or at least one, uh, that was one of the charges that was uh, leveled uh, against them. Now, why if the membership believe that, would they really excommunicate people for not observing the word of wisdom? Uh, we don't excommunicate anybody who doesn't observe uh, the word of wisdom. Uh, today, we don't hold disciplinary councils uh, for those people, but members are denied temple recommends if they uh, don't observe the, uh, the word of wisdom. Another issue that you talk about in your book is how technology during the early 1900s um, really started to affect the church in a positive way because they were able to take the technologies of the times, radio, and um, they even made some early movies, um, and, and kind of for the first time shape a public persona and then present it to the public. And um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the impact. It w did it have a large impact on our, um, like the public perception of the church, or was it really generally small? I think it was fairly small during that period because the, uh, t t to begin with, the church leadership was uh, really a bit ambivalent about the question of whether they ought to carry on an active public relations program. And why were they ambivalent about it? They just didn't know to uh, to what degree they ought to uh, to do that. Uh, I think it's uh, because it was something different from what they had done previously. They weren't certain just what direction they ought to go in. The first uh, thing they did was to establish this Bureau of Information at Temple Square. And there was some opposition within the church leadership to doing that. But Joseph F. Smith was very much in favor of it. And so uh, that's what they did. And they started giving out uh, literature. And then uh, they got burned the, with the Max Florence affair. Uh, he got somebody uh, to let him into the uh, temple. And he took pictures in the Salt Lake Temple of the various rooms and uh, the murals and other things in the uh, the Salt Lake Temple. The things were not of uh, very good quality. Now, what do you do about something like that? He started uh, publishing them, and uh, taxi drivers in Salt Lake City began uh, selling postcards with pictures of the uh, Salt Lake Temple. And so the uh, church leadership decided that uh, really what they needed to do uh, was to issue uh, something authoritative that showed what the temple inside was really like. And so James E. Talmadge uh, published the book, The House of the Lord, with pictures uh, from the inside of the Salt Lake Temple showing the, the rooms and then putting it into a, a context so that uh, people who read it wouldn't see it as some kind of a titillating sort of thing, but they would see that that uh, this was a sacred entity and that these rooms were established for sacred purposes. And uh, then uh, from there, uh, the church leadership uh, did a number of other things. 
after Theodore Schroeder uh, published articles in the Americana magazine attacking the church, uh, they encouraged B.H. Roberts uh, to publish a history of the church, and eventually that became the uh, comprehensive history. He added things to the, uh, to the last volume uh, when uh, th that was published. Then in the 1920s, James E. Talmadge gave a series of uh, lectures and uh, put them together in a book called The Vitality of uh, Mormonism. And there were a number of uh, controversies about evolution. Uh, Frederick Pack, who was a professor at the University of Utah, was involved in dealing with, uh, with that. And John A. Witzel and James E. Talmadge uh, were involved in uh, dealing with that. And on the other side, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith was involved. He insisted that there wasn't any evolution and that the uh, church, or, or that the age of the earth was uh, very short. Uh, Talmadge uh, argued uh, that it was uh, quite long, that it was millions of years old. And Heber J. Grant was very much upset uh, about this controversy uh, among brethren who were members of the uh, Quorum of the Twelve Apostles over this thing. And he thought it was just exactly the thing the church uh, should leave alone. And the First Presidency then issued a statement saying that uh, the age of the earth, evolution, were simply not doctrines of the church, either on the side that there was or that there uh, was not. And this was problematic because it was in the media, because of um, publications, uh, newspapers, things like that. The information could be disseminated broadly. Is that what you're saying? That's right, because it uh, it was disseminated broadly. And the, and the thing that tends to happen uh, when uh, one general authority pronounces on a particular issue, other general authorities are often reluctant to uh, talk about the same issue in opposition because it appears that there's uh, dissension in the Quorum of the, uh, the Twelve. And this causes difficulty because often the first one to pronounce on something then captures the, uh, the field in, in, the, uh, in the matter. And in this matter specifically, it was... Um Pres or uh, he wasn't the president at the time, but um, Joseph Fielding Smith, who really did kind of uh, have the last say. Yeah, the reason he had the last say is he outlived all the rest of them. Uh, <laughs> Johnny right. Witzel and James E. Talmadge were both dead by the time uh, he issued his man or a man his origin and and destiny, and uh, it's very difficult to uh, to deal with uh, that kind of thing when when uh, the last person to uh, talk about it is still alive and everybody else is dead. And then, of course, uh, Elder McConkie uh, issued his seven deadly heresies in which he uh, included uh, evolution. Uh, the, the, uh, th this caused a lot of problems at Brigham Young University. The administration at BYU eventually had to uh, deal with this question. And, of course, in the biology classes and in anthropology and archaeology, they have to deal with evolution. And uh, so the, there have been a number of uh, documents 
that uh, Bill Evanson and others have uh, issued and that the church leadership and the university leadership have uh, issued. Uh, it, it's one thing to make a statement like the First Presidency did, an official statement in, in which it said Adam was the first man, and it's quite another uh, to deny that evolution can uh, take place. It simply uh, is not the same kind of thing, or or to argue that uh, the the Earth is only six thousand years old. I can't imagine that, that any reputable scientists that today would actually believe that. Though there's a museum in uh, Kentucky, I think it is, or Tennessee, I don't remember which, uh, which uh, shows pictures of uh, men and dinosaurs uh, living uh, together and uh, argues that the Earth is only 6,000 years old. I can't imagine a reputable scientist believing that. Right. Um, getting to the arguments, the public arguments between um, B.H. Roberts and Talmadge and Smith, um, was that really the first um, public disagreement? Or had there been others or was that really the... Oh, yeah, there were other public disagreements before that time uh, between uh, Orson Pratt and Brigham Young, uh, between uh, Brigham Young and Amos Lyman. Those weren't the first uh, disagreements. So it was much more common. Do you feel as though the media and the technology development in media really changed that, the way that the Brethren behave as far as going on record to disagreeing with? Was it did they make a concerted effort not to do that anymore? I don't know how uh, concerted the the effort is, but uh, generally you, you don't see those kind of public disagreements anymore. So in your opinion, do you feel today that the, that the way the brethren function together as a group is more peaceful and more um, unified? Than back then, or are we just less exposed to it? Just your personal opinion. What do you? Think? I just don't know. I I really don't have any opinion on that because I I just really do not know. I I know uh, though that uh, brethren have taken uh, different uh, positions on uh, on the question of uh, homosexuality, for instance. Uh, you, you know, if you uh, uh, look at what Elder Oaks has said about it, uh, we just don't know whether this is uh, inborn or not. And what uh, El uh, President Packer has said about it, uh, that uh, it couldn't be inborn or, or words to that effect, uh, then those are different uh, positions. But, but they don't seem as uh, contentious as during that period on, uh, on something. I went through the diaries, for instance, during the uh, 1920s, and there there were uh, strong disagreements over evolution, for instance, the age of the Earth, and published disagreements. Uh, for instance, uh, James E. Talmadge published this uh, little essay called The Age of the Earth, which he argued that it was a uh, long time, millions of years old. And we have Joseph Fielding Smith's copy of that in the archives here at uh, BYU, uh, with the right uh, written across the front of it, false doctrine. <laughs> That's great. 
So they really had no qualms about disagreeing with one another. And uh, the the, uh, church leadership uh, declined to publish B.H. Roberts' manuscript, uh, The Way, the Truth, and the Life, uh, because it included a statement that uh, there was pre-Adamic life uh, on the uh, the earth. But that's been published since that time. It's been uh, published uh, by the church and by uh, signature books. Do you think it's important that the um, membership of the church understand that the that so many of these issues are established through discussion, through history, through culture. That I, 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 from a personal perspective, I always kind of feel as though we assume that the brethren of the church know all these answers, and that every once in a while they'll they'll let us in on their the secrets. You know that they'll give us a little bit, and but I think. We generally don't think of them in terms of really, really evolving their own thoughts and opinions. Well, I think the one thing that we need to understand is that the, the, the official position of the church can only come from one person, and it can only come under certain conditions. It comes from the president of the church, but if you look at the Doctrine and Covenants, that has to be sustained by the members of the church, and that's the reason that the manifesto was sustained, that the second manifesto was sustained, that President Kimball's revelation on the priesthood was sustained. Uh, I think sometimes we uh, don't realize that while the church leadership gives prayerful consideration uh, to many things, the official position of the church is not what some authority in the church says on uh, particular matters. They may be well-considered opinions on uh, those matters, and we give deference to them, and we take them seriously, but they're not necessarily the official position of the church on those questions. And uh, we need to to recognize that uh, that's the case. Uh, I think we need to uh, allow a bit of latitude uh, to these uh, brethren, uh, to recognize uh, that they're prophets. We sustain them as prophets, seers, and revelators. Uh, they're inspired, but they also have their own views on things. Um, you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you had you had spoken about how we need to think in terms of um, the prophets really being human. And what that, what the implications of that, you know, is. Can you just say a little bit about how that has shaped your own faith? Well, uh, you look at Brigham Young, for instance. Brigham Young preached the Adam God doctrine. That is, that uh, God was the only person with whom we had anything to do, and and that he was God. He preached blood atonement. That is, there were certain sins that couldn't be atoned for by uh, Jesus Christ's uh, atonement. I don't think anybody in the church believes either of those things today. And the, and the First Presidency at least repudiated the blood atonement doctrine in, in an official declaration in 1889. I think that uh, you have to look at this idea that 
church leaders may say things that are their own opinion on various things. They do that because they've thought about uh, something, they've uh, come to uh, to these conclusions, but they're not necessarily church doctrine that are binding on uh, members of the uh, the church. I think we have to give them a bit of latitude in in those kinds of things. So because they're apostles, because they're prophets, doesn't necessarily mean that they're always going to be right. They have to go through the same processes that we go through. Uh, I think that's uh, definitely true. I mean, if you if you look at uh, how Elder McConkie responded after the revelation on the priesthood was issued, I think you have to uh, to admire him for uh, doing uh, something like that, for, for saying, well, look, what Brigham Young said, or what I've said previously, were wrong. Uh, Brigham Young said that that uh, African Americans would never receive the uh, the priesthood, and uh, he was wrong about that. Right, and he readily admitted that. He was uh, I wrong. think that the other thing that we need to uh, to pay attention to is the principle of continuous revelation in the church, and I think that's where these fundamentalist groups really get off the track. And uh, I think also that. If we understand continuous revelation, uh, we can understand that uh, the Lord may reveal something at one time and reveal something that's different from it uh, at another time. Maybe because members of the church aren't ready for getting, receiving, and accepting uh, what was uh, right. And it's difficult, I think, at times for members of the church to understand that, particularly conservative people. Uh, conservative people are, are resistant to uh, to change, and I think they they don't understand sometimes that the church can change. The, the uh, leadership of the church operates under inspiration, and it's continuous uh, inspiration. Uh, so they may say things at one time, that are different from things that they've uh, said at another time. Have you ever encountered anything in your research in the history of the church that gave you pause or that affected your um, faith or your testimony at all? I can't think of anything offhand that's really affected my testimony. I have a strong testimony of the atonement of Christ and that the uh, church leadership uh, guides the church through uh, inspiration. Uh, I can't think of a time when I really had uh, problems with anything. Uh, perhaps uh, the only thing I could think of would have been the way the uh, some of the political positions that church leaders took during the 1930s and uh, 40s affected my father. Uh, I would like to have seen him more active in the church, but it was largely the uh, politics of some leaders, maybe extra church politics. That is, politics were outside of their leadership in the church that uh, caused him considerable grief. And, and I was sorry about that because I would like to have seen him more active in the church while I was Will you tell me about your history in the church as far as your relationship to the church, um, some of the callings you've held, 
how you feel about it today and how you were raised. Well, I'm very strongly uh, of the belief that the, of the church is dealing effectively generally with uh, most of the uh, problems that it uh, faces uh, today. And the other thing that I find encouraging is the way the church has begun to uh, to open up its past history. Uh, President Hinckley was a strong uh, supporter of, of the kinds of things that Marlon Jensen did. Uh, I know a little bit about what was going on during that period because I was a missionary at the church history department and a volunteer uh, during the time that uh, that Rick Turley, Ron Walker, and Glenn Leonard were writing the history of the Mountain Meadows massacre. And I know a little bit about the way in which they received strong support from the church leadership. And then the way the church leadership has reached out to these groups in Arkansas, the descendants of some of those people, and have dealt with the site at uh, Mount Meadows. Uh, that, that's one of the most difficult problems in our church history. And, and yet the uh, church leadership in recent years has been extremely sensitive about that. So you're saying that we've learned. We've learned from our history and we're trying to get better. Well, I think so. I think it's an ongoing struggle, human beings being what they are. But I'm encouraged by the current leadership of the church about the situation like that. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexander, for letting me come and speak with you. I've really appreciated what you've had to say. Um, again, your book is Mormonism in Transition. It's in its uh, third edition and, and recently released for republication. Um, and I highly recommend the book. And also the other book that I've read of yours um uh, the Life and Times of Wilfred Woodruff, or Things of Heaven and Earth. Things in Heaven and, and Earth, yeah. The Life and Times of Wilfred Woodruff, I can also personally recommend. Um, Buy and, early and often. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I just appreciate your perspective. Thank you for talking with me. You're welcome. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com.
to daily hours.